God bless CPAC. I gotta say, Orlando is awesome. It's not as nice as Cancun. We are on the cusp of being able to fundamentally change the nature of this disease because of the way in which we're able to get vaccines in people's arms. And the last thing, the last thing you need is the Neanderthal thinking that in the meantime, everything's fine, take off your mask, forget it. So you know what I did? I started the Neanderthal caucus. You're talking to the Rolex wearing, diamond ring wearing, kiss stealing, woo, wheeling, dealing, limousine right, jet flying, son of a gun. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Progressive Southern Theologians podcast, a show where two progressive theologians working in the South gather and discuss matters of faith, politics, and other social issues. I'm Mark Boswell, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Jamie McLeod. Jamie, welcome in today. How are things for you? Well, Mark, I'm excited for our guest today. Uh, he is, of course, the cursed one, so I can't wait to see what sort of bizarre problems he comes up with today that I can't fix. <laughs> That's right. Today, dear listeners, see you again. Uh, get not two, but three progressive theological folk doing good work in the South. Uh, Jamie and I are very fortunate to be joined yet again by the wonderful Dr. Jonathan Lamaster-Smith, another North Carolinian and a gifted educator and person of great expertise on matters related to rural studies, congregational work, and the United Methodist Church, among many other things. Jonathan, welcome into the show today. How are things for you in the great state of North Carolina? Uh, things are pretty good here. My wife got her first COVID vaccine today, so we're really happy about that. Awesome, Jonathan. That's great. My mother also got her first uh, vaccine today, so her first dose. So that is great. Good news. It's a, I, know that, I know that feeling. That's excellent to hear. Uh, dear listeners, as Jamie has alluded to, we um, we have attempted to have Dr. LeMaster Smith on the show on more than one occasion. Uh, Jonathan has been very patient and has recorded with us now for a third time, <laughs> and uh, we've experienced technical difficulties. Uh, no fault to anybody, but they have come up, and so hopefully this show, um, you will be able to enjoy it. But let me tell y'all, those past shows with Dr. Master Smith were wonderful, and you will enjoy <laughs> them if you had access to them. <laughs> so uh, today, uh, with Jonathan's patience, uh, we are diving again deeper into Jonathan's work. In our first segment, we'll talk about, get, help you get to know a little bit about who he is and what he's up to. Um, this will be complete. This is new for uh, for us and uh, for, for Jonathan. We'll uh, wrap up that segment with a Southern Showdown quiz extravaganza. Um, I am pitting Jamie versus Jonathan uh, to see who is the most Southern or who knows most about Southern culture. They're going to give each other a run for their money, I'm sure. And the winner will just get um, bragging rights, which are glorious in and of themselves. In our second segment, we'll discuss the smattering of issues that have been on our minds lately, including developments related to COVID, uh, which ties into Jonathan's broader work on rural issues. Um, we're going to talk about rural health care in particular a little bit. Uh, and as access to quality health care is generally related to one's financial well-being, we're also going to discuss uh, some reports coming out about the experiment in Stockton, California, which Jamie will tell us a lot more about, um, that's seeking to establish a, a basic level of income for all residents and what that might mean for folks in places that aren't Stockton. And as always, we'll bless someone's heart between our first and second segments, and we'll close out our show with our regular front porch musings. Before we begin today, we'd like to ask that if you enjoy this podcast, to please rank and subscribe to the show in your podcast app of choice. 
And if you want to read more of our written work, please visit our website, progressive7theologians.com, and also check us out on Twitter and Facebook. Everybody, thank you for being with us again this week. All righty, friends, we are indeed very fortunate to have the one, the only, Dr. Jonathan LeMaster-Smith with us on the show today. So let's start out this segment by just helping our listeners to get to know you a little better, Jonathan. You're now living and working in North Carolina, but Jamie and I are connected with you through our time at Garrett Theological Seminary and the PhD program there in Chicago. Uh, so tell us, good sir, where are you from and is North Carolina your home? Yes, I am from North Carolina. I am from the town of Earl, North Carolina, which no one knows where that is because it's a rural town. And <laughs> as you do, you have to keep getting up in size of city to be able to tell people where you're from. <laughs> so I grew up outside of Shelby, North Carolina, which is the home of Earl Scruggs uh, and Don Gibson uh, in terms of the country music world. And beyond that, it's about an hour west of Charlotte, North Carolina, or about 15 minutes north of the Gaffney Peach, which is a giant peach water tower on I-85. That, uh, let's do a little Southern quiz here. What else does that giant peach look like, fellas? Have y'all not played this game before? Oh, no, no, yeah, no. I know, I know exactly what it looks like. <laughs> I've only driven my thing like 300 times. So. <laughs> I'll take the PG route here and just say, um, if you've ever been on 95, you is it 95 or 85? 85. 85. 85, right. Yeah, other side of the state. Yeah, if you've driven past it, uh, it looks like a big butt as far as I can tell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's always a topic of conversation if you're driving along, if you're on that part of the in that part of the world. That's a great, it's a great, uh, it's a great marker um, that tells me, yeah, it does give me a sense of where you are. So that's wonderful, um, Jonathan. Tell us who the, you said um, Gibson. Yes, is that related to the in the musical world. Tell us a little more about who that is. I don't. I, he is a country music singer. It's not the Gibson of Gibson guitars. I was it wondering. Is a, okay. It is an old school country music singer. And his estate apparently left some funding to uh, the to the area, and they bought a theater. And now, they, now little Shelby has big name country singers, or at least used to be big name country singers, and rock and various other things. They've had um, uh, Leanne Romack, Travis Tritt, uh, some so some fairly decent size, uh, de- decent reputation country singers come in, plus a bunch of random local artists as well. Nice, very nice. Um... Jonathan, we're going to talk more about music later in our second segment, so put a pin in that. We're going to come back around to that for sure. Um, Let's talk a little more about faith and theology just for a minute. Um, The way I see it, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, and our listeners if I'm wrong, when it comes to your faith and understanding of theology, I like to think that you're on the side of the angels, by which I mean that you're not a conservative evangelical Christian. No offense, conservative evangelical Christians. Uh, We don't... um, (laughs) We don't assume such things to be true for all people, uh, all Christian folk who are in the South um, or across the country. But uh, I think I'm right on this. So tell us, if you don't mind, how did you how did you grow up in the South and yet come to be introduced to, uh, let's say, a more theologically robust understanding of Christianity? Uh, So some of it, I was kind of already entrenched in a somewhat progressive uh, community. Uh, the small little Methodist Church, United Methodist Church that I grew up in had a bunch of educators and free thinkers who were just kind of open to exploring and discussing things. There was never really any talk of like formal theology and those sort of things, but it was pretty much a set up as an environment in which we were taught that God welcomed and loved and cared for people and told us to do what was right. And those are the things. 
to, to do. Yeah. And, you know, as I, as I go along, I got the blessing of an undergrad experience with feminist theologians and liberation theologians teaching my undergrad degree and my master's degree. And then it's just how I've always been since then. Excellent to hear. Uh, Jamie, I've asked you this question before too. And I remember you've told a story about finding, uh, you had Gustavo Gutierrez, I believe in the, in the house on a bookshelf. Is that right? Yeah, that is. Yes, that is very true. My, my father was uh, a religion major at Wake Forest. And so he had a whole slew of religion books sitting on bookshelves at the house. And yeah, I, I pulled Gustavo Gutierrez down, you know, one day when I was in high school and just started thumbing through it. And that sort of started me on the road to, uh, to progressivism. Wow. That's, that's, I'm envious of that. Very cool. Very cool. Jonathan, uh, we also know that you are, um, and I mean this sincerely, I'm not just trying to flatter you, but from my perspective, uh, you're the go-to guy when it comes to things related to United Methodist history and polity, uh, which means understanding the ends for our listeners means understanding the ends and the outs of the political processes of the Methodist church. Um, I imagine that many of our listeners, if they're not Methodist, they may have heard and they may, I, I had this encounter the other day with someone when I mentioned the Methodist church and the, the, the first thing that came to mind were issues related to LGBTQ inclusion. Um, so could you give, without getting into all the, 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 the weeds here, could you give us a little sense for the non-Methodist among us? Um, what's going on there with the Methodist world? Do y'all not like LGBTQ people or... And I'm joking. I know it's more complex than that. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's way more complex uh, than that. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really just there. It's really just when we get there, they give us a piece of paper and we get to check yes or no. Enlighten us. Enlighten us, Jonathan. Tell so, so what's going on in the United Methodist Church has been going on since at least the 1970s. At the early uh, and dealing with issues of human sexuality that are more entrenched in understanding of theology and power, and this simply becoming a target of that, I think that um, what's currently happening is uh, most recently in the news you will have seen that the uh, new conservative uh, group that is emerging out of the United Methodist Church is calling itself the Global Methodist Church. Uh, GMC, they didn't consult a brand consultant to realize that sounds like General Motors Corporation. Uh, um, so they are um, in the process. They already have their own their own polity and their own setup. So they are expecting and planning to leave the United Methodist Church. Uh, they are mainly United States centered, but with some other parts because we are a global denomination. Other parts of the country uh, the, of the of the world will have maybe joining them as well. And uh, we were trying to have this discussion in September of 2020, but then, of course, the global pandemic happens, and then we move it to 2021, and we decided we cannot have it safely again this year because we cannot guarantee that there will be enough vaccinations distributed around the world to get everyone safely to Minneapolis is where we plan on having the event. So it is now, other than a one-day emergency session to basically... Uh, reapprove the budget so we can, you know, continue to pay people. Mm. Um, moved all the way to September of next year mm. uh, of 2022 in Minneapolis, still August and September now, I believe. Uh, across that month, changeover, and what we're seeing there is we're seeing everyone's. I feel like we have churches that are already disaffiliating from the denomination and not going anywhere. They're just becoming congregational individual churches, uh, but we have this kind of anxiety about us because we're re everybody's ready to move on uh 
and and go back to doing ministry and stop worrying about this on either mm-hmm. side. Mm-hmm. We want to continue because there's work to be done in the United Methodist Church once this decision is made. Uh, in terms of because we're also dealing with not just that it's an LGBTQ issue, but we are a global denomination where most of our power is still in the United States. And thus we look like an empire church that has all of our little outposts. And we're trying to figure out how to become a much more global church with our leadership dispersed throughout the denomin- throughout the world and not concentrated in Atlanta, Nashville and D.C. Right. And I would and I, I would assume that what that also means is <clears throat> how to I mean, what we're talking about here is how to welcome and include LGBTQ clergy and other people uh-huh. within in the life of the church. They're already in the life of the church as it is, yes. but how to balance that with that more global reach and the, just the general theological diversity that exists when yes. we have a, a and scale also of issues nature. of ordination and issues of um rights within particular countries as well. Even in our polity, now we say that we support LGBT right, LGBTQ rights um, in the workplace and in the world. Uh, we just don't, we just don't think we, uh, it's complicated because we say that in one sure. part of our discipline and the other part we say, you know, they're, who they are is incompatible with Christian teaching. So it's that mm. complicated. But again, I said, like I tell people, we just now in 2019 got around to adding women to the list of people. So we are behind on our paperwork. So for for decision decisions um, that you have mentioned that are, are going to have to happen next year in 2022 at this point, what is that decision? So there are several possible plans in place gotcha. uh, for how the denomination will exist or not exist after this coming general conference. The one that has the most most favor came out of a group of discussions that happened uh, in a church in Virginia that brought in several people from around the world to vote to affirm the conservative group leaving the church, giving them a check to go with them so they can get started, build up their own denomination, and mm-hmm. then doing the work within our denomination to become a much more affirming and empowering church. With that, uh, there are other, uh, you know, like it's just like in Congress, we have a we have a um, political system that will go through committees, it will get discussed, it will get chopped into pieces, put back together. So we don't, and I always tell people, I can't tell you what's going to happen at the end of that general conference, right. but I can tell you what my thoughts are on what might happen. Right, right, right. I will. I'll, I'll share just for a second that I was talking with a um, a colleague uh, recently who's a Jewish man, and he just started to ask a question or two about church polity, which of course polities look different across denominations. But he was astounded at the the richness and the complexity, and probably the frustratingness too. But we talked. We we just shared very briefly about what all that was. But he just was not, was was unaware. Um, of I've I know a little I know a little about the UMC to know that it's a complex polity, um, not dissimilar from the PCUSA and from some other mainline congregations. But there's for listeners' sake, like there's a there's a lot that goes on yes. <laughs> to these types of things. Um, Jamie, let me punt to you for a second. Uh, you're PCUSA Presbyterian Church USA. Uh, have y'all y'all figured all this stuff out over there? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, it's hard to imagine. I mean, we could always regress, I suppose. But most of the folks who were uh, who were anti have all left the denomination at this point. So it, it it feels like it's probably a done deal. But you know, the spirit moves as she moves, and I, I suppose that a general assembly could regress. But I doubt it at this point. Right. 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 Okay. Got gotcha. you. 
Um, which is still a thing that a lot of people, when it comes to human sexuality in the church, I run into people all the time who genuinely do not know that there are denominations that are either a still struggling with it, but that they have sides who are concerned, you know, about inclusion or not, uh, or that there are denominations who have made definitive decisions about the inclusion of LGBTQ people in the denomination. So for, for non-churchy folks, <laughs> there, there endures a perception that the church is still largely something akin to a fundamentalist Baptist church <laughs> where LGBTQ folk are uh-huh. not welcome, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So I like to, I, I'm, I'm glad we could toss that just a little bit um, around uh, today, just so if folks are listening and they're are, are, are curious about all of that, that there are conversations are ongoing. Um, or have some definitive conclusions have been made in other places like the Episcopal Church or the PCUSA, et cetera. Now, Jonathan, let's um, let's pivot over. I'm gonna ha- I'm gonna have you ping ponging around here to a lot of different <laughs> things because you do so much and you know you know a lot about a lot of different things, um, including uh, 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 the concept of rurality. I like. Oh that wow, a that's lot. a great rurality, word. The, yeah. Isn't that a good word? Yeah. It's a good, um, it's a good word. Uh, spell check does not like it, nor do some editors. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm a big fan. So, Or the study of rural context uh, yes. in general. Um, and also you uh, the, the, the study of the practice of rural ministry as well. Um, you teach courses in that. I help you out with one of those. Um, but you do a lot with that. It's a passion of yours. So uh-huh. let me first ask... Um, uh, again, I say this in the same sarcastic spirit. I, I asked a question earlier, but uh, why bother with rural folks? Uh, there are, as I hope we'll tease out in a bit, there's uh, there are a lot of there there by virtue of what's not talked about in a lot of theological circles. There's reason to believe that some theological circles don't care about rural folks so much. So you you spend a lot of time with that. So tell us a little bit more about how that's come to be, an interest of yours, and, and what that looks like for you. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, there are people who are like, why bother with the rural church? It doesn't matter anymore. And they're all just, you know, backwoods and ignorant. Uh, and of course, you know, that's not true. Uh, if you've been anywhere in rural areas, we have wonderful, beautiful. I mean, I came from the place where we have the ad, we have the, you know, Earl Scruggs and Don Gibson's major players in right. American music. And, uh, but yeah, so how I came to like, how I came to be interested in that. Well, I, uh, I went to college, uh, and since I grew up in a tiny church, I thought I assumed the only thing you could do in ministry or theology is be a pastor. So I was going to go be a pastor, and I ended up uh, deciding to move more towards the Christian education, faith formation, and then eventually onto academics route. Mm-hmm. And I get a job uh, in a church in several different churches, in well in rural communities, and I served them. And I realized that my education had not planned had not prepared me for the issues those rural communities were faced, such as losing uh, their historic and still major employer of the Mm -hmm. furniture company in that town and watching the people not know how to deal with it and the church just saying, we'll pray for you and Mm -hmm. not providing any resources, any tools for imagining new futures together, uh, for actually engaging in mission and service that could be more transformative than a box of food. And, so I decided, you know, I need to do something about this. And I'd already planned to go get a PhD anyway. So I applied to two schools, never hear back from one. Garrett calls me and tells me I'm in. So I ended up going and studying at Garrett Evangelical with all of the, some of the same professors you both worked with. And uh, 
among others, and uh, find myself now in a rural spaces, acknowledging both the the beauty of rural ministry and rural life, as well as the ghosts and the and the horrors that are present in rural life, and teasing out the the hope that I have that new futures can emerge in rural communities that take seriously the heritage and work with it in ways that can be relaunched uh, to create new life in the, in the places as opposed to what we get with some of the even educational policies that teach rural students to abandon their rural homes to go be consumers in the cities. Mm, mm. I love the phrase that you used a moment ago about the ghosts, you know, of these spaces as well, and that which continues to haunt um, and to linger around um, in these spaces. What are, um, what would you say are some of the more enduring, I've actually seen you solicit um, response to this on Facebook and other places, but what are some of the more enduring stereotypes about rural folks and or rural churches? Um, one, that rural areas are all agrarian. That is, they are all agriculture-based, and a huge portion of the rural communities are not agriculture or even resource extraction-based, such as logging, mining, fishing. But they're going to be much more industry-based, amenity-based, or uh, uh, ex-urban, that is, a bedroom community to a more urban area. That's one of the stereotypes. Also, that all rural communities are white. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's just not the case. Uh, you know, Mark, you grew up in Eastern North Carolina. You know, there's large African-American black populations in rural areas all across the South through what we call the Black Belt uh, of, ru- of the rural South. You also get, I worked with some churches in Florida and they were just astounded to see that 30% of some of their counties were Hispanic Latino communities that, um, and they were just shocked at, at that. Even the county I live in now has a larger Hispanic Latinx population than the African-American population. Uh, and that's in rural Western Mountain, North Carolina. So those wow. are two of the big ones that you work with. Also, that they're all you know conservative religious nuts, uh, <laughs> and, and and it's true in all of these. There are some counties that are all white. There are some counties that are all agrarian, and there also are some counties I'm sure that are all just full of religious nuts. But that is not the case in most places. In most of the rural counties I've experienced, there are po- there are pockets, if not whole communities of progressive folk or people trying to do good work uh, beyond this sense of uh, God and guns that we get in our rural town and then in a lot of our rural imagery that we have uh, in the mainstream. One of the, the, one of the more interesting demographics, they're all interesting, but one that stands out to me that I don't, I've, I've never heard talked about very much are rural people in the South where the Bible belt, you know, predominates who, are not religious at all and are not engaging. And so, and what I mean by that is that there's a certain rebelliousness to I've got family members this way. I encountered people in the Delta and Louisiana who were this way, um, who, again, like you said, people assume that everybody's crazy religious nuts or, but that's not even like liberal conservative. There are other people who exist in this space who are actively choosing to not be part of the Christian tradition and I find that fascinating. I think it's, um, I think it takes a degree of courage to do that, to stand so far outside of what is culturally predominant uh, in terms of, uh, you, I, Jonathan, you might could say more about this. Jamie, you've experienced this too, I'm sure. But there's even, there's so much of a tendency to ascribe moral goodness uh, in these spaces to whether or not one is attending a church actively. And so to, to, to uh-huh. willingly stand outside of that space um, 
is is a fascinating thing. And so, Jonathan, um, tell me a little more about what are some of the what are some of the more enduring stereotypes about rural folks in general uh, and rural churches, in a little more particularly. Uh, so, in thinking about how the stereotypes around rural communities, I, I think of we often assume that rural communities are all agrarian, mm-hmm. uh, all you know, all whites, and uh, you know, I think those are the two big ones for me. Uh, assuming that all rural communities are just farmland, and it's just not the case. A large percentage of our rural communities are um, industrial based, or they're amenity based, or um, there are. Um, exurbs or you know bedroom communities that you drive an hour hour and a half to the urban area where you then work and then you go home and do your live your life in your rural area mm-hmm. i think within the church of course you have that all churches are conservative mm-hmm. all churches still read the king james version of the bible and you know those sort of um those stereotypes with that and that everybody in rural communities go to church and we know that that's just not the case we are only slightly behind the national average in terms of people not attending any religious organizations uh in, in that i can't give you the numbers right off head but it's well over 50 percent of people in rural communities do not go to church on a regular basis that's fascinating i would not have i wouldn't have known where to put that number but i wouldn't have put it as being close to the national average that's interesting yeah mm-hmm. uh, let's take a detour here for a moment and um talk about i know that in terms of stereotypes like we just mentioned that not every person who is rural is conservative not every person mm-hmm. who is rural is a republican which not everybody yes. thinks either uh but mm-hmm. i do think that there's a contingent of um there's a contingent or a group of some people some white rural folks um in the South and across the rest of the country, too. This is not just a Southern phenomenon um, that are attracted to the conservative movement. And it, the idea here is that their values and narratives um, are not appreciated or are sidelined or are silenced or are misrepresented, um, again, akin to these stereotypes that we've been talking about, um, or that their hurt or their pain is minimized when the factory does pack up and leave and go out of town. Mm-hmm. Um and so I, I, there's a sense in which uh, I'm, I'm using all of this as a, as a very belabored segue to a topic that we want to talk about. Uh, and that topic, the topic is cancel culture, which has been in the news a lot this week and, and in previous weeks as well. And for years now, um, it's, it's, a, it's a term that gets used, uh, oftentimes leveraged against liberals who want to cancel everything that doesn't fit into that liberal agenda or that type of thing. Jamie, why are the liberals so mean and insistent on canceling conservative culture? Um, <laughs> given the way that it's again, here again, more sarcasm. Uh, but that's, that's the argument here. Um, and likewise, conservatives never do this either, right? They don't want to cancel anything. Um, is that true? How does that work? Uh, no, no, right. No, it, none of that's true. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so what conservatives call cancel culture, liberals call, please don't be racist. Please don't be homophobic. Please don't be transphobic. Please don't, you know, be white supremacist. Um, you know, just, just don't do those things and you can do whatever you want with the rest of your life. Uh, no, you know, this week, and I, we'll talk about it, I think, a little bit more in a bit. But, right, so Dr. Seuss has been on my mind a lot the last couple of days because the, the Seuss estate voluntarily, I know nobody was trying to push for this, pulled a few of his older books that are kind of hard to find anyways, 
uh, but pulled them all the way out of circulation um, or will not publish them anymore, at least. Uh, and and it's because of images, some language, but also images that were caricaturish of people from other other ethnic groups. Right. So 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 mm-hmm. Asian folks were drawn very, very over the top Asian African folks looked like something out of, I don't know, a tribal movie or something. Uh, and, and there was, he also used blackface a lot. So in these early books, they decided to pull out, uh, pull these out of publication. And this has sent conservative world into a tissy. Um, I, I don't know what to do with that, except to say that cancel culture has become a buzzword and, 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 and much of conservative conservatism, at least the political side of it, is fueled by grievance. And anytime you say the word cancel culture, you gin up the grievance once again. And so this, I guess, fit into the category of something that they could declare to be cancel culture. And, and so there you are. Yeah. And I would add my word that I would add to that with grievance is a sense of victimization in here. Yeah. And I think the idea with Dr. Seuss is like, here's this innocent, benign child's, you know, children's book or, or, or children's author. And Horton, here's a who is that's I don't think that's books we're talking about. Right, Jamie or Cat in the Hat. No, <laughs> like, I, no. this is not the, what they're talking about. Right. No, they're not right. So the only ones that you probably would have heard of is to think I saw and to think I saw it on Mulberry Street which is, I, that's my favorite Dr. Seuss, actually. Uh, and and McGillicott's Pond, both of those have troubling imagery and and some amount of troubling um, language, though not as much as just the, 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 the sort of caricaturist drawings of Asians and folks from Africa. And, uh, right, so no, The Cat in the Hat will still be available on, on bookshelves. Oh, the places you will go will still be available for graduates. Uh, you know, I... This is a, a big deal made out of the no deal um, yeah. because I know of nobody and neither do you who was pushing for these books to be pulled out of circulation. And at the same time, you heard absolutely no pushback when the Lorax, which is one of the, which is one of the most pulled books from circulation in school libraries and such because conservatives think of it as being too liberal. And so uh, you find yeah, a yeah. lot of schools pull the Lorax off their shelves because it's just considered to be too much for, for kids to handle. No, they, they don't want to be thinking about truffle trees and, and, and not buying the needs. So, <laughs> right. But, but you, you heard the needs, the need is something you definitely need. Make no mistake. But, but you, 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 you did not hear any sort of uh, response from conservatives when that happened. Right. So it is the the books that most of all you've never heard of being pulled off um, completely voluntarily, not anybody asking them to do it whatsoever. Um, and that's that's the big deal today. So I don't know, man. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's I I, I was um, struck by the I just started to re- literally to see this a day or two ago. And so I just did a quick little old search on the Google machine and. I searched Dr. Seuss racist imagery or something like that. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the, that needs to be in your search history from now on. You can't delete that. No, absolutely. <laughs> that will go in the archives when your memoirs are written, when your biography is written. Well, I'll, be, I, I'll be darned if it's not true. That's the other thing. I was oh, like, no. What exactly yeah. are they talking about? Yeah. And, and to Jamie's point, some of these books are so obscure that you would not know that they were even out there. You would not have been exposed to them. I don't think even 10 or 20 years ago, like you can't go to Barnes and Noble and find some of these things that are being referenced here. Um, 
but I will say this: uh, the imagery that uh, the the imagery that I did see specifically of people of African descent uh, is so dehumanizing that it is made. It's it's a caricature for sure. That it is made, uh, and this is not unique to Dr. Seuss. This happened in the in the turn of the century, early early mid twentieth century. The caricatures of African Americans are made to look like uh, monkeys, apes. You know, like they are playing up an animalistic yeah, yeah, yeah. form of imagery. So. Uh, if it sounds, just search it out for yourself. If you're listening to this and you're like, eh, really? Yeah, go check it out. I was even like, oh, wow. Yeah, that's a thing. Like, that's a real thing. That's not, a, this is not a matter of interpretation. Like this was very egregious on that side um, of things. So Jonathan, do you hear, uh, do you ever hear much about this? These concerns about cancel culture and, and sort of the weaponization of this? Do you ever run into it much or? So I'm thinking back on it. Um, and looking not not in well, I'm not currently serving in a church on a regular basis right now, but I think back to uh, uh, Paula Dean uh, and the issues around her and whether or not that we were canceling Paula Dean and then Duck Dynasty too. Those two were two big ones. Um, but the thing about it all is is that uh, people were it, for the, the places I served. I mean, particularly for Duck Dynasty, they did not want to be associated with Duck Dynasty because it was not the kind of lives or images they wanted to be uh, displayed of rural culture. So part of that, well, part of that would be that. And I also think that some people are just not going to give much credence to things they don't care about. Or like some of the people I, I saw with Paula Dean, like, I'm still going to use the recipes. <laughs> They're there. <laughs> the best banana pudding recipe yeah dude that woman can cook so, don't get me wrong like <laughs> <laughs> but uh she dealt with a lot of issues of classism on the top of whatever she was dealing with uh and her mm -hmm. and her racism she was mistreated by the culinary community for using too much high fat content and high uh, for, for those sort of for her foods so it's complicated i haven't really run into it and people being upset about i see I get occasional throwaway. I've gotten occasional throwaway comments to try to rouse up people, but people just aren't interested in the churches that I've served dealing with that. That's interesting. I, I lived in Louisiana. I lived about an hour and a half, which was the closest um, urban center to me, um, which is where uh, to the town where the Duck Dynasty folk are from, and where uh, one of their where their uh, shop is and the restaurant, all that. Um, but I lived and moved through most of the four years I was in the Delta. I lived and moved through that time, and um, it wasn't a thing that a lot of people talked about. It was just—it was almost like a passe show that was you know, coming on. And I'm sure there are a number of mostly white folk that I encountered occasionally who probably would be like, "Oh yeah, Uncle Phil, cool, read his book, whatever." <laughs> but um, and for me, it's and, been a lot of upper middle class white folk. Not, you know, the working class folk that they were trying to appeal to. Exactly, exactly, yeah. That they want to just, you know, wear camo and buy his products because some consumer culture means that I can be like that. Right, right, right. And I, th I think what we're really talking about, in my opinion, about cancel culture is anytime a community with certain morals or values say, hey, here's a cultural expression of something that I think takes a step beyond what it should. And I think the world would be better if this cultural expression was not allowed to take place. Um, that on the one hand, that's it. I, I'm not saying that's, that's all the nuance for either side of the conservative liberal divide, but I say all that as a precursor to saying there are multiple examples of conservatives doing the exact same thing, whether it comes to 
pornography, whether it comes to lyrics and songs that they think should be canceled or screened out or censored. Another, I think another valid yeah. word for this is censorship, too, when it comes to uh -huh. pop culture. And there's a whole lot of movies and TV shows and things like that that people with conservative morals have thought should be censored or banned or not oh, allowed. Yes. And so uh, it, it, there, there seems to be some convenient capitalization on the term cancel culture to be something that is not unfamiliar to the conservative world, as Jamie already said at the, at the top of this uh, question, where he's like, yeah, yeah, this is not something unique to liberal folk. And I agree with Jamie's assessment largely that um, for liberal folk, a difference here is that it does tend to revolve around dehumanizing practices, forms of speech, comments that get made, things like that. And and also around an idea of repentance, too. Like there are, I, I would imagine, I don't have any right offhand, but I would imagine there could be, the, it could be the case that uh, that folks have survived certain things, survived cancel culture. Like that's a kind of a real thing to survive. Uh, if they were to come out and say, oh God, yeah, I really didn't mean that to do it. And they were sincere. You know, like it's not as if this is something that you can never come back from, which is the way that a lot of conservatives tend to talk about it. It's as if this is yes. some irredeemable social death that you can never come back from once the liberals have canceled you or that kind of thing. So anyway, roll my eyes just a bit at that. Uh, uh, Jamie, uh, did you want to get a final word in on that or what are you? Well, yeah, I wonder, and I, I wanted to actually talk to Jonathan about this, right? So, so one of the things that you get when you get cancel culture and you really just get this grievance is that you, you gin up, you gin up sort of passions in your base, but your base are only ever really pawns for you. Right. I mean, they're pawns towards political uh -huh. power. Right. So the entirety of the South is being used for political power right now. Nobody actually cares about, you know, the guy living in the hollow who doesn't have running water right now. Right. I mean, that no, no, yeah, no, exactly. nobody cares about that guy except that he can vote. Right. And so, yes. so that's, that's my, that's my thing is that as we talk about this, like all this outrage is all ginned up strictly because they want to get the base fired up. And when the base is fired up, they become pawns for larger political power. Exactly. And the issue though, still with that to me is that the folk who are being ginned up genuinely believe this to be true. <laughs> like it's, it's, it, it, it creates a whole world in which that is genuinely believed to be the way that the world is. And that's, uh, and it's so and it's 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 this bizarre thing that I do run into the like, you know this person and the thing that proves it's not true I think recently has been Morgan Wallen the country music singer who has been in trouble for different things throughout his time he's also young drinks heavily uh, he was most recently uh, caught on tape yelling a racial slur after being on a 48 hour bender um, and it got released because, you know, of course, everything we say or do now can be recorded and released, and we should be cognizant of that. Uh, and uh, people were very upset with him. And yet his sales skyrocketed, and he continues to be at the number one on the, on the country charts and maybe the Billboard charts. Um, and he has released apology letters of people in the industry. Uh, he has been... Um, removed from certain things within his, uh, within his label, but he has began to do the work and he's doing it kind of publicly of realizing this is what he needs to work out in his life. And uh, he has had other country music singers he works with uh, both white and, and, um, and African-American because surprisingly there are still black country music singers, even though the way the industry has treated, has treated them has been terrible. Um, 
uh, have come out in support of this said you can if you are if you are willing to work through this we will be with you and help you work through this uh, that sort of positive thing but of course to hear on other uh, here on conservative radio he's canceled never coming back and it's all because he can't use the words he wants to use <sighs> but you're saying too that at the base level in terms of consumers of his music that has increased because there's a sense of like oh he's a victim now of cancel he could be a victim of cancel culture so that's the reason we want so to we go need to go ahead and yeah. get him as much money as he can that's right so he can yeah 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 <laughs> Yeah. And that ha- that's not just happen- that happens to everybody who has dealt with those kind of things is they actually end up making more money off of being canceled. Mm. <laughs> My goodness. My goodness. And of course, now that I realize we're on a podcast and people can't see my finger quotes. <laughs> <laughs> just assume half of what I said has finger quotes around it. <laughs> it's a ironic detachment is great. Everything. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I've uttered many an ironic joke from a pulpit and could see the looks on everybody's faces and to realize that that ir- that, I, that that irony or sarcasm did not touch down the way that I hoped or thought it would. <laughs> and, but I, I do get, I, I, rec- I audio record my uh, lectures for my classes, like podcasts like this. And my, I have occasionally students emailing me like that last lecture had the most hilarious line. In it. <laughs> but like only one student every semester will get something. And I'm like, Oh, yeah. <laughs> somebody gets me. <laughs> <laughs> My humor is not wasted on deaf ears. And that 30-minute lecture, they got my throwaway joke, and they loved it. So we're good. And it ended up in a paper for their ordination. <laughs> Related to humor and jokes and, and, and fun things and your courses in rural life, et cetera, et cetera, uh, I want us to take some time today and do something different on the show here and we're going to pivot and do something a little what i hope will be fun and i hope will be enjoyable for people who are listening again i'm calling it the southern showdown quiz extravaganza (laughs) and i'm going to ask you and jamie a series of questions about southern life and culture a little bit about music as well there's a couple of those questions i tossed into Uh, we're going to alternate who gets a first crack at each question we'll go back and forth uh, if you miss the question, your opponent will get a chance to scoop up those points. Again, points like in uh, the Drew Carey show, the improv thing, points are meaningless <laughs> and have no value and get you nothing at the end of the day, but, uh, but some bragging rights perhaps. So we're going to see uh, what you all know about Southern culture. And I will say that I think you guys are going to knock these out of the park. You're probably going to scoff at some of them as being way too easy. That's okay. There might be some folk who listen to the show who are not from the South or who have not um, are not familiar with some of these questions, and so that's what we're gonna we're gonna do this a little bit today. Jonathan, since you are our guest, uh, you get to go first. I've got a series of questions. There are multiple choice. I will read out all the options here, uh, and you get to choose one. And if again, if you are incorrect, it'll bounce over to Jamie. So Jamie, be be on top of your game here. I know as you always are. Jonathan, mm-hmm. first question: mm-hmm. It's terminology. If you are gussied up, you are a you're ex, you're excited. If you're gussied up, b you're dressed up. If you're gussied up, c you're ready to go, or d you are dirty. So so, so while it should be easy for me, I've heard it used in three of the four ways you've. That's said. exactly what I was going to say. Of course, <laughs> I have used it used it because different areas use words differently. Sure. So, uh, 
You're messing with my mind, Jonathan. <laughs> uh, because you know, um, uh, so I'm going to, I want to go with dressed up. All gussied up means you're dressed up, like to go to church, or even better than church. Um, but I've heard it as you know, are you gussied up? Are you ready to go or go to church? And then I've heard yeah. it. You're so excited, you got all dressed up for it. Ah, okay. Some helpful nuance there, Jamie. Is that what you were yeah. thinking? I see you nodding along. Yeah, exactly what I was thinking. Interesting. I'm going to give you the point, though, uh, Jonathan. I definitely think uh, dressed up was the Eastern North Carolina version of that uh, that I was most familiar with. That is good to know. Um, next question, Jamie. This also, I can see this can differ by region, so I'm going to be fair to that. <laughs> However, you let people with PhDs answer questions that are multiple choice, and all the answers. Yeah, that's exactly right. right. That's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Mark and I are from the same region, though, so this should work out okay for me. I tend, oh, good, to, good. I tend to think one of these four things go with this more than another, but maybe y'all can argue me down, <laughs> prove that I'm wrong. I'm going to intentionally make up stuff like I know things. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> Jonathan. I'm using, finger, I'm using finger quotes, but you can't see them. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Jonathan, Jonathan, I know you appreciate Southern culinary traditions, so I'm going to ask you to, to, to argue in good faith here. But Jamie gets first okay. crack at it. All right, Jamie. This is an SAT analogy type question. Fries are to hamburgers as blank are to catfish, is that A, hush puppies, B, mashed potatoes, C, okra, or D, collard greens? Oh, I can argue A or C, but the answer I imagine is A. There you go. A it is, hush puppies, exactly. Yeah, huh. in Eastern North Carolina, at least, and in the Delta too, the uh, commonly served side item with fried fish of any type is usually hush puppies. The other would be coleslaw, which I left out yes. because that would be very confusing to put coleslaw <laughs> and hush puppies there. So there we go. All right, Jonathan, next question for you. Woo Pig Suey <laughs> is the rally. <laughs> That's a fun thing to say. Woo Pig Suey. <laughs> It's the rallying you put the cry. Energy you should have That's right. I know. I can't breathe. I know. I just. Oh, I'm a North Carolina. I'm a UNC Tar Heel fan. I just can't do it with the full conviction of somebody from this actual state. Uh, that is the rallying cry for which school that goes by the same name? Is it A. Alabama, B. Georgia, C. Arkansas, or D. Mississippi? Um. So, the rallying cry for the the school. Mm-hmm. Is Woo oh, Pig Suey? Yeah, yeah you, uh, I'm going to go with Arkansas because Razorbacks. That's exactly right. There you go. Okay. Arkansas, it is. Arkansas. I was like, I'm familiar enough with Alabama, but the Mississippi was the one that threw me. I could not remember. Yeah, yeah, it is uh, Arkansas Razorbacks. Woo Pig Suey. That's for sure. The original question I was I was doing some uh, some outside work and it was Roll Tide, which I felt was way too easy for you all. And Jamie's a native Alabamian, or he's is Alabamian now. Uh, so we switched it up a little bit, went on the Arkansas side of things. So good job, Jonathan. You got that one. All right, uh, Jamie, this one's right up your wheelhouse. You'll have no problem with this. Hoppin' John is associated with which holiday? Is it A, Christmas Eve, B, Mardi Gras, C, Easter, or D, New Year's Day? It is D, New Year's Day, and my Hoppin' John is amazing. <laughs> that's what i thought that's what i thought i've heard i've heard of such things jonathan are you a hoppin john fan i am but i would not have associated it with the holiday we are we are strictly black eyed peas some form of pork and uh greens here i got you i got you okay okay all right jonathan coming your way the next question 
Um, you get another linguistic question. Sorry about that, but here we go. So let's have some fun with this. If someone is too big for their britches, they are they are a growing too fast, b wearing overalls, c excited, or d conceited. Wow. So I, I want to make up an argument for one of the first two. <laughs> some comment about southern southern body shaming or something <laughs> uh, but no um it, it, it's it's uh conceited or prideful right prideful conceited <laughs> exactly good job done okay <laughs> jamie next question coming your way you get another food question this is how it's worked out so far okay randomly randomly done here brunswick stew traditionally served with eastern north carolina barbecue originated in which state georgia B, South Carolina, C, North Carolina, D, Virginia. The, the answer is A, Georgia. That is true. I would also take Virginia as that. Both states lay claim to the origin of Brunswick stew. But, uh, See, I was hoping you would ask the question, what is one of the traditional meats you put in it that we do, typically cannot get at restaurants? And that would be squirrel. Oh, you said we like... We do that. <laughs> but by we, you mean you. Mean you. <laughs> I, mean, I mean authentic foraging, culturally appropriate foragers. Who, uh, because we have not yet farmed squirrels successfully. <laughs> I was, uh, <laughs> was going to ask a question about souse meat. But I put oh, it on Facebook gosh. earlier, and Jonathan, uh, Jonathan, I know you've already looked up the recipe for souse meat, so I'm going to forego <laughs> that question. You have. So I, I do need you to put the recipe with this, uh, <laughs> but with this episode, though. It's allrecipes.com. It is. Um, it is. It sounds. It sounds. It's. It sounds like something my parents would have. Uh, it's you know various parts of pork, usually usually the head, uh, but feet are feet and knuckles are also encouraged. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I've always heard. I, did, I honestly didn't know. I just my dad, my dad, and others have always just told me it's all the other parts of the pig that you don't eat otherwise gets yeah. tossed into oh. your souse meat. So. I was, uh, I've tried it before, not quite my deal. Although my dad did respond to that Facebook post very excitedly about um, his preferred way of eating sauce meat. So, which was, uh, oh, I, didn't, I didn't see that part. What was, what was the response? Salty, a saltine cracker with some apple cider vinegar poured on top. That sounds about right for anybody who eats pork products that tend to need to have something salty and dry and then something either acidic or sweet on it to just drown out any flavor. Yeah, it's kind of how I treat an oyster. Yeah, so yeah, it's a, and I like it's a, I like oysters. Yeah, 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 yeah. The same yeah, thing. Oysters are vessels for cocktail sauce. Yes, indeedy. For the three listeners who have made it through the conversation about sauce meat, we thank you for staying with us. <laughs> <laughs> Your gift is in the mail. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> this is this is a, this is an extravaganza today. So they're getting more than what they bargained for. <laughs> Well, it's just we have to we have to we have to try to top every recording we've done, even though they'll never hear it. That's right. That's right. Uh, who had uh, that last? That's question? not a wildly was, high bar. That was him. He was. It was a food question for Jamie. So, food oh, wait, for no, Jamie. Okay. Yeah, it was Brunswick. Yeah. That's right. Brunswick stew. Uh, Brunswick yeah. stew. Okay. All right. Here we go. Next question, uh, Jonathan. This was coming your way. While not originally from this state, the wrestler Ric Flair is most associated with which of the following states? Is it A. Georgia? B, Florida, C, North Carolina, D, South Carolina. I have no idea. 
I, I will allow Jamie, Jamie to steal that if he knows. I'm not, I'm not, I know who Ric Flair is. That's about it for me. All right, Jamie. He's the, do you want to take I've been prepared for this question all my life. All right. The answer is Charlotte, North Carolina is where the man is from. Uh, he's from Michigan, but he, of course, is known for being from Charlotte. Though I will say that I saw him wrestle once in Greenville, South Carolina, and they called the Bilo Center the house that Ric Flair built. So I guess you could say yeah, South yeah, Carolina yeah, yeah. as well. So, But we in, in North Carolina, we claim Ric Flair as one of our own. Woo! Absolutely. Well, now I know we were not a wrestling household. So yeah, he, uh, it, it, I, I, I'd imagine that the Carolina Hurricanes, the hockey team, may still do this, but they would feature Ric Flair whenever a goal was scored at the hockey game. That Ric Flair would that come makes on. Sense. And yeah, totally his, makes sense. Yeah. Yep. All right. Um, I am going to. Uh, I'm not going to say give mercy to our listeners because I think they're enjoying this. That's what I would like to think. But I'll uh, we'll fast forward a bit here. I got a few more questions left. Um, Jamie, where would you purchase a Cajun filet biscuit? A, Biscuitville, Biscuitville, B, Crystal, C, Bojangles, or D, Whataburger? C, Bojangles. Ding, 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 ding. That is correct. I think I saw Jonathan uh, giving some recognition to that as well. Love, love the Bojangles. Love Bo. My dad's a big fan of that. Here's a very... Woo, man. Another right, North Carolina establishment. Very, that's right. Yeah. That's right. It's slowly, yeah, slowly stretching out. Down to Alabama. It's not quite, I don't think I've seen one in Mississippi yet. Um, but uh, they're more than welcome to come. Bojangles, if you're listening, come on over. Jonathan, here's another linguistic question for you. Again, it just happened to fall this way. Um, this is surely... Uh, different by region and I think even within region, but it's something I would I, I heard occasionally, although my family didn't use this term, but I've heard many other southern people use this term. A buggy <laughs> refers to which <laughs> refers to which of the following non-insect related items? A buggy. Now again, I recognize this word is used in multiple ways, but what's a unique way in which it's used here? Is it used to refer to A, a four-wheeler? B, a grocery cart, C, a grocery bag, or D, a bicycle? Uh, I'm going to go with my assumption is going to be a grocery cart. Dang, that, that's what I was like. <laughs> uh, that's you, what the, you were from, that's what you were the, from out east, though, so I was like, maybe he's thinking of like a four-wheeler dune buggy situation. <laughs> yeah, no, fair, fair, very fair, yeah, fair, fair, yeah. But when you, I, I'm thinking, I don't, uh, when, I'm thinking of going to, the, you go to Walmart with your grandma, and she says, you need to go get a buggy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I still say I still say buggy. It's it's a thing. That's it. You do you use that term? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. Okay. Yeah. My, we just we never did, but I heard it a lot, and would um, always think of it as a as a southern colloquialism as well, uh, for sure. All right, y'all. Last two questions. These are a little tougher. I've upped the ante just a bit here. Um, you all are more than well equipped to to know this answer. Your PhDs. You're very smart fellas. Uh, Jamie, we're going to start with you. Uh, this is for all the marbles here. thousand points apiece for each of these questions. Legend has it, Jamie, that this blues guitarist sold his soul to the devil at a famous crossroads in Clarksdale, Mississippi. Which blues artist was this? Is it A, Sunhouse, B, Mississippi John Hurt, B, or C, Robert Johnson, or D, T-Bone Walker? It is C. Robert Johnson. That's exactly right. A thousand points to Jamie at the Robert Johnson. Uh, 
it is it, that left me as soon as you asked it, but I could have told you that ten minutes ago. Yeah. So I was like, I was going to lose this one too. Oh well. Being down to the crossroads. If uh, 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 Eric Clapton cover, a lot of people cover this song. Eric Clapton covers oh, it. Yeah. Robert Johnson wrote originally, as far as we know. Um, interestingly, I've been to that. I've been to Clarksdale, Mississippi, several times. Love that area. Um, uh, Morgan Friedman has a uh, blues bar in Clarksdale, Mississippi, small town. Uh, and also, there are multiple churches around Clarksdale that claim Robert Johnson's grave to be. They have. Like, I've heard that in, before. In yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've visited a couple of those, but there are multiple. Yeah, it's it's unknown uh, ultimately where he was. He died very early, tragically. But uh, yeah, there's a couple of uh, churches that claim uh, his his final resting place to be there. All right, Jonathan, you get a more um, sort of academic-y kind of question here. I think you're you're ready for it. <laughs> the oldest city in the United States which is located in the south, is which of the following cities? Is it A, New Orleans, B, Savannah, Georgia, C, Charleston, South Carolina, or D, St. Augustine, Florida? Which of those is the oldest and oh. is the oldest, actual oldest city in the United States? Oh, no. I have no idea. My brain was going to go to Jamestown, uh, being in the south, uh, Oh gosh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with St. Augustine, Florida. That's ding, right. ding, 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 ding! You got okay. it. Yeah, okay. you got it. Yeah, the college. That made sense. It made sense. Uh, but I was just like, I know Savannah's not that old, so. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm assuming here there's some uh, Spanish colonization history. I'm thinking that's what it is. Yes. Back, so. Right, right, right. Got it. Guys, you are both winners today. Jonathan, since you're our special guest and you've come back on our show now three times. <laughs> Um, you're gonna, <laughs> you get, you get to take the, the, the rights here, uh, uh, as being the, the, the winner, um, of our Southern showdown quiz extravaganza, Jamie, uh, you did extraordinarily well as well. Uh, so thank you all for, or for playing with us and that'll wrap up this first segment. Jamie, Jonathan, we're now, uh, we're now moving along to our Bless Their Hearts portion of the show in which we muster all of our Southern passive aggressiveness and bless the heart of somebody who has recently appeared in a less than favorable light with the caveat that we always also reserve the right to bless someone's heart in a genuinely positive way if we should so choose. Jamie, I know you're blessing someone's heart today. Could you share that with us? Who is, whose heart are you blessing and why? Mark, I know I said last week that I wasn't watching CPAC and then uh, <laughs> and then I was researching this uh, this this essay that I wrote about the golden Trump that's coming out either tonight or tomorrow. And so I went back and I looked at highlights of CPAC. And so I want to bless the heart of Ted Cruz for making a joke about Cancun and not being able to land it whatsoever. I want to bet the heart of Josh <laughs> Hawley for talking about being silent, standing in a room full of people with millions of people watching on television. I want to bless the heart of Margie Taylor green for, t for declaring the United States to be a communist oligarchy because she doesn't know what either of those words mean. And I want to bless the heart of Roger Stone who danced next to a guy who was kind of like a hip hop artist singing about kicking down the door to the Capitol. So I want to bless all those guys hearts because they all need it. So there you go. Wow. Jamie, Jamie, since uh, we're very, uh, you're you were able to bless, 
You were able to bless four people's hearts there. So that, that that's a beautiful. That's in like a, 20 seconds. That's right. It's really, that's a beautiful thing for this segment. It's, so, like, it's like lightning around. That's right. That's right. So, since we've uh, taken a little, we've taken a little extra time from our listeners with our quiz. So Jamie, perfect. Great way to uh, bless people's hearts today. Listeners, again, remember, if you ever have suggestions, uh, if you can get four in 20 seconds, pass that over to Jamie. He's your man. He can get that done. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, thank you. All right, friends, in our second segment, let's turn our attention to other current events like the fact that Texas, Mississippi, and Alabama are taking those masks off, baby. There has been a lot of developments on the COVID front since we've last talked about it on the show. So let's recap a few things. First, we've got vaccines coming through all over the place. Pfizer, Moderna, now Johnson & Johnson. We probably all know folks who have had one or both doses that we talked about at the opening of the show. All good things. Get your, get your uh, vaccine as soon as you're able. We know that some people are having to wait longer than others, so be patient. But hopefully that can uh, continue to spread and things can be back to normal um, relatively soon. Uh, on the other hand, though, we don't have any reason to think that things are perfectly back to normal now. <laughs> There's uh, leadership in Texas, Mississippi, Alabama seem to think that they are, and uh, lots of measures or preventative measures are being lifted. Uh, Jamie, you're living in one of those states. What, what's going on with, with Texas, Mississippi, Alabama, and probably some more southern states to follow soon? As I understand, there's there's a CPAC connection to this as well, right? So Greg Abbott is, of course, the governor of Texas, and at CPAC over the weekend, somebody who is threatening to challenge him in a primary whenever he is up for re-election, which has got to be coming up soon, uh, was talking about how bad the mask mandates were and how, uh, how how badly that had been managed by the Texas governor because, of course, Texas should be open and free all the time and don't mess with Texas. Uh, and, and so a Abbott decided to uh, to to just throw every throw the doors back open to everything, right? So no more masks and every business is 100% open right as spring break is about to descend upon them with Padre Island. And uh, so, yeah, so, and as soon as that happened, I, I, I think I texted one of y'all and I said, this is going to start a countdown for every single state in the South to do this at some point or another. And so Tate Reeves, of course, of Mississippi not to be outdone, soon announced that his mask mandate and all that was going to go away. Uh, and then, because she's always running a little bit behind, Governor Meemaw of uh, of Alabama uh, decided to <laughs> decided to do away with the mask mandate as well. Though she is giving that uh, what a month or so, the April 9th is I believe the date that she has set it for to uh, to cancel all mask mandates and all that. So yes, so the South is again a shining example of of greatness uh, in the midst of this coronavirus, and uh, we should all be very proud. <laughs> Well, old old brother old brother Asa Hutchinson in Arkansas is 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 dead, uh, is considering such things as well. He's he's lifted a lot of preventative restrictions. Um, this day or two ago, the mask mandate stays in place for about another month as well. But other restrictions he went ahead and is lifted. Jamie, you know, I was thinking back to the bless your heart from uh, probably a week ago with um, Donald Trump Jr. Um, thinking that the governor of Texas was a Democrat. So Greg, Greg Abbott's got some ground to make up to make sure that nobody mistakes him for a Democrat. <laughs> 
I just cannot. How can these people not? You, you, we all have computers in our hand, and Google can really tell you the political party of like everyone that. in the world. <laughs> like that. And it can tell you what communism and oligarchy mean. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> With a picture, of, a picture of Barack Obama right next yeah. to those terms. <laughs> well, yes, that would be a different uh, search. Is there a conservative search engine like the conservative social media parlor? I'm sure. I'm assuming there's a there's a there's got to be a conservative dictionary out there or something where they would find. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Jonathan, um, you have spent some time I know recently thinking, experiencing, and thinking about rural health care um, in yes. relation not just to COVID but just in general. So tell us a little bit about your what you've been musing on and thinking about in terms of rural access to quality health care. Mm-hmm. So over the past couple of years, my parents have had some health concerns, and I've really helped navigate some of the issues around health care and the situations in which they have to navigate a very complicated healthcare system in a, uh, and um, after actually having my dad having to find healthcare as well as dealing with uh, disability paperwork and all of the stuff that goes into that. And uh, it maybe I'd already been interested in rural healthcare because we know that rural communities are very much uh, struggling with that. We've had several hundred in the past five years rural hospitals close uh, and 200 at least 200 more are on the brink of closing within the next year due to further strain on them from the pandemic as well as other issues because mainly rural communities are smaller in population they also have an older population and they also tend to have more medicare and medicaid Mm. uh, recipients in those areas and thus they will have or at least higher percentage of that than say urban areas and so those don't pay as well as private insurance companies in terms of re- reimbursing the hospital. Hospitals, many of our rural communities have lost their hospitals or they've lost pieces of their hospitals, including things like critical care and trauma care, uh, 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 neonatal and prenatal care, uh, prenatal intensive care units. Uh, you know, other places have lost their heart centers, their cancer centers, or mm. you just hear the rumors. They say they have a heart center, but it's, we call it the Band-Aid Center. You need to go to Charlotte for that. Right, um, right, sure, sure. Those sort of things. So we, we run into that. Uh, we run into most of the southern states have not embraced Medicaid expansion uh, in terms of the ability to provide health care to uh, a huge portion of low-income Americans, a lot of those living in rural areas. We also see the fact that many doctors cannot afford to move to rural areas mm. due to the high cost of medical school, student loans, and also this, this sort of desire of they move to an area that has a med school, they want those amenities that that area has, and you know, uh, you know, Marion, North, North Carolina does not have that. Uh, yeah, Although they yeah. have a they have a nice brewery and some nice hiking and stuff, uh, and so what you see there is strain on the system, and the pandemic has not helped to the point of where hospitals are operating at capacity almost constantly now, and, and rural hospitals are not designed to operate at capacity. Right. Uh, so you have people having to sleep in ER trauma rooms while they wait for a bed to free up. And ER beds are not designed to be slept on. They are designed to do quick exams and quick procedures to stabilize people to move them to the next place. Uh, you also see uh, struggling exhaustion in the healthcare workers uh, because we have a lot of healthcare workers uh, re- resigning 
you also just they're just I could go on and on like lack of mental health care, lack of uh, lack of appropriate treatment facilities, lack of support from larger areas or redistribution of relief funds from these rural areas that really could benefit from it back to urban areas. And in fact, this happened with uh, early on in the vaccine schedule. They canceled a bunch of rural people's appointments so they could reallocate those for a major. I think they did it at the stadium in Charlotte a major um, vaccinations a day, which, you know, those are great. It's to get a lot of people in one day, but you end up inconveniencing a lot of people who are high risk in rural areas uh, so that you can have a major publicity event. Right, 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 right. That uh-huh. Gosh, that reminds me of so many of my experiences in the Delta in Louisiana. There would be, um, again, we were about an hour and a half from an urban center, uh, Louisiana-based mm-hmm. urban center, and there would be inevitably um, nonprofits or health agencies or other types of government agencies that would be located not in the rural area, right? They'd be housed in Monroe. This was also the home of the Duck Dynasty people, but Monroe was the biggest city and it would be housed there. And the the, the jurisdiction and the, the scope covered by these nonprofits would include all the rural areas, right? So they would get the money. But then they might send, I mean, they're underfunded too, so I don't want to completely throw them under the yeah. bus. But they're going to, they might send somebody out to a rural area maybe once a month, maybe twice a month to go out and to try to even make people aware that the money and the services are even available because getting the information out just was not set up in such a way that it was going to get to the rural folk anyway. Or you have somebody with no ties to the community whatsoever who would roll into town one day a month, maybe once a quarter and set up shop at, I don't know, a local church and just expect that people would come through and get the information that they needed when nobody even uh-huh. knows that they're coming to town in the first place. So what then, uh-huh. what happens, not necessarily by uh, by malintention, but what would happen is that the majority of the funds then get used for the urban area for Monroe because, well, the rural folks aren't using it, so therefore we're just going well, to use this excess it. budget for our yeah, urban needs. So we see a lot of that. Yeah, and it's, it's awesome because we're not very good at actually – so people are trained in public health education, but they're not trained in rural public health education. Right. And knowing what are the what are the avenues by which to educate rural people are going to be different than a bus stop banner to tell them that there's an event happening. Yeah. It needs to be you know lots of other places, schools, churches – those the hardies where people go get coffee every morning and sit for three hours. That's right. That's right. You know who your community leaders are in, in small towns and rural areas when they, the folks who know how to get the information out. <laughs> That's who, because it's not the conventional yeah. ways like you just talked about, but uh, those folks yeah. who are there. Um, uh-huh. Jamie, let's let's wrap this into. We don't we don't have to stop talking about rural health, but I think it relates. You have been interested recently in a study that's come out about. Uh, uh, I don't want to use the word experiment because that, but it is, it is that in a sense in Stockton, California about uh, an attempt to provide a basic level of income to all people who live there. Could you tell a little bit about what that is and how that's worked? Because I think that's something that relates to people of lower socioeconomic statuses, wherever they are, will be of interest to us. Uh, So what's, what was happening in Stockton? What'd you see? What was catching your eye? Right. So, so the mayor of Stockton, who is now no longer the mayor of Stockton, uh, his term ended midway through the experiment, essentially had an idea, I heard about it first probably four years ago, uh, of giving of giving everybody in Stockton sort of a set amount every month, right? With no strings attached and no, no reason to file any paperwork on it, no reason to use it for any one given thing. And, and, and he ended up turning it into a pilot program for 175 families in Stockton where he gave them each $500 a month, no questions asked, no strings attached, no nothing. And 
two things, a, a series of things happened. One, the employment went up, right? So the more that folks were able to not worry about sort of keeping the lights on, the more they could reach up for that next level up of job, right? So, so full, more fuller employment was a result of giving that money out. Two, familial anxiety cratered. Uh, because to, to quote one of the, the participants of the study, I didn't have to tell my kids no all the time, right? I, can, can we have ice cream? No, we can't afford it. Can we have a new pair of shoes? No, we can't. Right. So for, for, for $500 a month, she was able to take care of her children, take the stress of money out of their life and be a parent more often than having to work sort of three jobs to make it all string together. Right. Yeah. The other thing that I thought was interesting, because one of the critiques of this is always that folks are going to abuse this for, you know, drugs, oh, yeah. alcohol, cigarettes, whatever. Less than 1% of the allocated monies were used for drugs, alcohol, cigarettes. So, so Mark, you and I have talked about this before. There's a an historian named Rutger Bregman who wrote a whole, wrote a book about, at least in part, about universal basic income. And he studied probably half a dozen different communities who have tried it across the world. And in 100% of the cases, it was a roaring success that it was actually, it balanced out the amount that they spent. Actually, they got back and then some in every single case because it took so much stress out of the system that, that folks could better function as citizens of the country in which they found themselves. And so, and it, it, it became a cycle of going up instead of down. Right. So, take stress out of the system so you're able to reach for the next higher job you get that next higher job takes more stress out of the system right and i like i'm a i'm a huge proponent of it now and now that we have in america actual results from it i mean i, I think there's no reason not to sort of expand this pilot program and look at you know a, a thousand families right five thousand families across spread across the nation and just see if those numbers continue to bear out this is Right when we talk about the rural poor and needing a, a, an infusion of cash, that's what this is, right? If you were to give every single family in, say, Robinson County, North Carolina, five hundred dollars a month, that would pull so many folks out of poverty that it's hard to calculate, right? And, and it's no different yeah. for for folks in, in in Earl. It's no different for folks outside of you know Wilson, right? The, in all these places where there's poverty upon poverty and, and no particular great job opportunities to get out of poverty, just that small amount would pull people and primarily kids out of poverty. And I am a huge proponent of this and we'll be moving forward because I think it's a wonderful idea. I'm totally on board with that. I, I, I definitely think that's a, a solid direction to go. I also think adding to that, I would add to that, uh, incorporating things like uh, free or income-based childcare and then free or, or, free or income-based community college would definitely those two things alone, I think, would change so many yep. lives uh, along with that. Of course, I, you know, for dreaming, you know, universal health care as well. Well, that, that's what I was going to say, right? Yep. Because part part of the issue with rural health care is that the whole system is it's based on making money, right? And so, mm -hmm. my, my, Jonathan, you know this, Mark knows this. My dad's a doctor in a rural town. Uh, and the hospital yes. that he is attached to can barely keep the doors open. And have tried probably yeah. five different partnerships in the last twenty years to to uh, 
to, to form that relationship and to make it more stable. And, and in every situation, it's not worked. And so they get further and further down the line and further, further closer and closer to closing. And it's because it's all based on a profit-driven model in, in medicine. And there's just no way to make that work in a rural area. That's right. And it, it's true. My, my fear about universal basic income is that I just finished reading Jonathan Metzl's um, Dying of Whiteness. And he looks at the heartland of three states, uh, Kansas, Missouri, and uh, Tennessee. He's, I guess he just drove across. And um, what he ran into was whenever they're talking about health care, there and universal health care or even just uh, uh, Obamacare or Affordable Care Act, uh, he had people say that they would rather die than see immigrants and in quotes, Mexicans get health care, mm-hmm. then they would rather die of their sickness because they couldn't afford their health care than see people who, in their eyes, did not deserve the free health care. And that would be, I think, the fear there, too, is people would rather die or, or go hungry than see people who don't deserve it get it. And they'll make up language about welfare queens and about uh, illegal immigrants and all the same stuff we hear over and over again from a particular political party. So that's my that's my struggle with that. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a recurring theme we've talked about in terms of uh, politicians uh-huh. capitalizing on that uh-huh. sentiment and using that then as justifications for not accepting uh-huh. Medicaid or uh, uh-huh. Medicare expansion and uh, to every anything any kind of any kind of what they will call handouts or entitlements uh, that it's I don't I, I even if I think I deserve it I don't want everybody to have it so I'm not going to take it. That's right. Yeah. And even and even as the, the uh, out of all the demographic groups of the United States, uh, white people are still the largest recipient group of uh, those types of handouts, uh, statistically speaking. Mm-hmm. So, but that's not the myth of whiteness, is it? It's that we are the hardworking, so, or or it's the deserving and the undeserving poor. The myth of that as yeah, that's well. Right, and yeah. So if they are taking them, then they are deserving. And Jonathan, as you pointed out, if there other people are not deserving of these things, and they should not have that. Jamie, that's a great uh, that's a great thing uh, that you brought up today about the Stockton experiment. I w- we, let's put a pin in that and definitely come back to that in the future. Um, There's a city in Indiana that's going to be doing it next, actually. So that's worth keeping up. Interesting. I, I think it's maybe interesting. Uh-huh. It's just I don't remember. It's one of the larger cities in Indiana is going to take on a pilot program like that next. So it's worth oh, it's wow. worth watching the results of that too. Absolutely. Great. All right. Well. It reminds me of, I read something or heard something somewhere about modern money theory, about how uh, a lot of economists are beginning to say, you know, you know, the question of money is we have taxes to pay for things. If we don't collect enough taxes, uh, we can't pass things. Well, we know that we have not had a balanced budget in decades. And and yet we still have, you know, so the, their whole argument is that taxes are actually to adjust inflation. So we really should just be taxing the people with a lot of money so that we can just continue to create all these resources because money is imaginary anyway. It's not tied to uh, it's not tied to any standard right. anymore. It's a digital thing. It's all cryptocurrency. <laughs> all right, Jonathan, I'm going to let you have the last word there. Uh, I'm not. <laughs> I have no corresponding quiz to the economic <laughs> concepts there. So uh, <laughs> thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Jamie. All right, Jamie, uh, it's now time for our front porch musings or a time when we share something that has touched our hearts or that we have found interesting that may not be national headline news. 
So, Jamie, mm-hmm. again, you are now wrapping up a long week at CPAC. You have uh, you have seen the the golden calf statue of Donald Trump in person. You have been horrified, but you've recollected yourself, and you have come home doing your field work. Uh, and you're on your front porch, and you're doing some musing. What are you musing about today, Mark? I want to lift up uh, the docu series that was just released from Netflix called "Murder Among the Mormons." It's a it's 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 for uh-huh. one, it's fabulous. It, it, it's it's um. The, it's presented in very much of a whodunit sort of way. Uh, and, and and even though they're interviewing folks 20 and 30 years after the fact, nobody gives anything away. Like they all sort of present it as if it's new information. And so there's this, I mean, it's obviously about a murder that happens in Salt Lake City. It's actually a series of murders that happen in Salt Lake City. And it's around uh, the the authenticity of Mormonism, right? And so there is uh, mm. there are documents that are involved in Mormonism that that would uh, cast doubt upon the sincerity of Joseph Smith, and so there is a, a murder case that's formed around that in order to keep those from getting out. Uh, and like I said, the the, the doc, I'm an episode and a half out of three into it, and it's fabulous. And everybody should take time to watch it because it's it's very very good. I've heard of the documentary, did not know that's the story that it was about, but I've heard about that story, and so that's interesting. I will definitely watch that. That's that is sincerely that fascinating. Sounds interesting. To me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I am going to muse about today very briefly a book that I've just picked up and have started reading. I am a fan of uh, World War II, Holocaust, Nazi-related literature, understanding that world and how these things happen. And there's a novel that has just been re-released, actually. It's called A Bookshop in Berlin. Um, but it is a memoir that was written around 1945-1946 by a Polish-Jewish woman named Francois Frank- Frankel or Frankel. Um, she ran a, a bookshop in Berlin uh, up until about 1939, 1940, at which point she was able to escape merrily with her life and to get out. Um, she only had a little bit of protection. Well, you can read about that in the book. But anyway, it's a great the memoir was written. Uh, it got published somewhere, you know, kind of on a low key stage. And then it was pretty much lost to time for the last 50, 60, 70 years or so. But it's reemerged. It's been re it's in publication again. You can find it at Barnes and Noble or on Amazon. And it's a great little read. Good little, uh, good little uh, uh, novel uh, and, and or I should say memoir rather. But Francois Frankel, a bookshop in Berlin. Highly recommend it. All right. Good people. That's going to wrap us up for today. Jamie, as always, thank you for your time. Mark, it was a pleasure. Jonathan, as always, thank you for uh, for trying again and for being with us and for uh, stay tuned, uh, everyone, for episode four of We Try to Have a Podcast. There you go. Which will be episode one to you, dear listeners. <laughs> Jonathan, congratulations on uh, winning the the Southern Showdown Extravaganza quiz as well. I hope that uh, their statue will be in the mail coming your way or your whatever it's okay, called, good. a trophy or some sort. If you're listening along, thank you for joining us. Please hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening and leave a five-star ranking if you should so choose. Remember that you can find all of our written work on Facebook, Twitter, and at ProgressiveSouthernTheologians.com. Friends, y'all take care. Jamie and Jonathan, you all both take care. I'll be back with you next week.